Um, I had the opportunity um, when I was uh, at a high school to go back. I think I'd been away from a church for a number of years, and I had a chance to go back and visit it after I'd been away for a few years. And, and it was interesting because this church I had been a part of as a kid was at one time just thriving and exploding. My, my family started attending it when it was like maybe 70 people, and within, I think, maybe six, seven, eight months, it had grown to 300-plus people. And, and there were a lot of things happening, and people were excited, and I know they were you know, building, and they were adding things, and it was really pretty cool. And so I'd been there for this, like, height of it, and then, you know, I, I went off to college, and, and I came back, and when I came back, there was, like, 30 people in the room, and it was, it was really, really kind of sad to see, and, and that's happened a number of times in my life where, where I'll, I'll go and visit a community that I've been in, and then I'll come back, and it's like things have changed, and sometimes changes are really good, but sometimes those changes are really evident. It's really hard to see. And I remember this church in particular, it was just almost sad because what once had been thriving was in decline. And recently I had an experience like that too where I visited a, a church community that Don and I had pastored for a very long time. And, and it's gone through some massive decline due to COVID, but also other situations. And when you're there, it's like it's hard not to just be, I don't know, grieved a little bit and sad. And and it's interesting because these churches at one time used to be really friendly churches and, and, and they were compassionate and, and, and they were really outward focused because I believe that churches that are growing have to be outward focused, amen? Like if we want to grow, we have to have an outward perspective on the world that we, we live in. Um, there were there were churches that used to, for instance, the first one from my childhood had a major value for worship. Worship was was part of its culture, and, and when I visited it later on, it felt like it was kind of like an add-on. It was the, the primer before the sermon. And I've been thinking a lot about, about that, about this idea of churches and church health and, and growth and trying to navigate how are we going to be caring for each other in our community as well as being outward-focused, because these are tensions that always tend to be challenging for us. And we've said for five years now that our mission here at the Red Bluff Vineyard is to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Like that is the, the, the mission that drives what we do. And, and I, I have said this many times, but when I'm thinking and praying and evaluating things that we're going to do or ministries that we're considering, it's always filtered through whether or not it will help us know Jesus or whether or not it will help us make Jesus known. Because if it doesn't fall into those two categories, it's hard to see why we would put a lot of energy and effort behind it. So this idea of church health and church growth um, raises some questions. Like, what makes a church healthy? What makes a, a church, you know, healthy and functional? And I, I, I think some of the words that might come to mind would be loving. Would you agree that loving is a characteristics of characteristic of a good church yeah or friendly I mean uh, this morning I loved walking in the front door and seeing Kim Kathman's beautiful smiling face and she said good morning to me you know and I saw by the way I went to a Giants game with Kathy uh, Kim Kathman not Kathy Kim the other day and Kim is a Dodgers fan and it was very interesting to see how unfriendly she was to me at that game um, I'm just kidding we had so much fun um, but friendly, I think churches that are, that are functional and healthy are, are also churches that are welcoming to people. They're, they're also committed to biblical values. 
I think another um, characteristic of a healthy church would be they are empowering. They want to empower and, and release and encourage people to pursue the giftings and the passions that they have for Jesus and the kingdom. And then I also think that, that healthy churches are gonna advocate for justice. They want to see justice on this earth. Health and maturity and growth though, when it comes to churches, I think are all connected concepts. And as our church grows, we have to think about some of the things that we need to put our time and our energy into. And that's kind of what many of our leaders, we spend time thinking about. But for this month, this, the month of, of September, what I wanna do is I wanna spend time looking at selections from the book of Philippians. And the reason why I wanna spend some time looking at the book of Philippians is because in the book of Philippians, we can see some really beautiful, beautiful themes throughout that passage. Is the screen not working? It's not, oh, hold on. Oh, it did work. Okay, that was, I was gonna say, I spent a lot of time and energy putting this together, like three minutes. Um, okay. So we're gonna look at the book of Philippians and the reason why we're gonna look at the book of Philippians is because there's a lot of different themes throughout some of these readings that will help us think about the characteristics and qualities that we want to pursue. And so before we jump into this week's selection of Philippians, I wanna talk a little bit about the background of, of Philippians. Uh, anybody ever read the book of Philippians all the way through? Like you've just read it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Like it's, it is definitely one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's so warm. It's so full of joy. It's just, it's one of those books where you feel a lot of encouragement after you read it, rather than when you read some books of the Bible, you're just like, oh man, that was kind of depressing. <laughs> this is a different type of book than that. And so I wanna look at the, the author for a few minutes here. And his name was Paul, the missionary Paul. And he's a really fascinating figure because he writes the majority of the New Testament he was a missionary. He traveled all over the Roman Empire. And I think it's kind of fascinating to think about how much he traveled. And so just to back up, Paul is a Jewish uh, rabbi. He's a Pharisee. He, in his day, was one of the top scholars of, of his religion. I mean, he knew everything about the Old Testament law, okay? He's, he's really, really, really well-versed. However, he also denied that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Jewish anticipated Messiah, and he participated early on in, in persecuting Christians. In fact, Christians were murdered because of the, the, the um, commandments of Paul. And so just think about that. The person who goes on to write the majority of the New Testament at one time was killing Christians. It's really beautiful how God can redeem stories, isn't it? And so we have this man named Paul. And so he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, has this encounter, is completely transformed, and then he spends the rest of his life doing everything he can to further the message of Jesus. And so if you look at uh, these travels, he did three different missionary journeys, okay? The first missionary journey, he travels all over what is today modern Turkey, okay? He travels all over. Second missionary journey, he travels again further, makes his way all the way over to Europe. And then the third journey, he does the same thing. And so I think when we see these maps, we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. He did some traveling. You know, he probably got on an airplane and flew across the world, right? But listen to this. This is again, as you know, before there are airplanes, okay? Um, when he traveled, his first journey was nearly 1,500 miles. He travels 1,500 miles. His second journey, he traveled 3,500 miles. 
In his third journey, he did 3,300 or 3,300 miles. And that is remarkable, I think. He travels a total of 8,388 plus miles over the course of his, his time um, as a missionary. Anybody else find that re- re- remarkable? Like, it's like, wow, it's crazy. Um, listen to this, though. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians about his travels. Listen to what he says he goes through. He said, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. So over the course of all that travel, that's what happened. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. So they, they beat him with this big um, whip that had pieces of bone and metal. It's the same thing that Jesus had happened to him. He, he had that happen five times. He faced death again and again. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and often have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. And this summer I was like, the air conditioning better be on at the church. (laughs) I mean, when you put this in perspective, it's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? It's pretty overwhelming. And so this is what Paul, this is Paul, this is Paul in perspective. And what's really remarkable about this, I think, is that this is well before there's cars, there's airplanes, there's air conditioning, and then even more importantly, there's no iPads or iPhones to stare at for the duration of your trip to entertain you. I mean, it is a lot of, a lot of walking. In fact, just to give you perspective here, just look at this. It's like going from San Diego to Maine, Okay, it's 3,200 miles. And so just imagine this. I mean, this is the equivalent travel that he had done when he was a missionary, and he did it all by foot. He did it all by foot. And so that's the, that's the background of the, of the author of Philippians. I mean, he's super committed to the kingdom of God. Would you agree? This guy goes to church even when there's no air conditioning, right? I mean, he does. He's, he's, he's there, and he is committed. He is, he is a man of the kingdom. So what I want to do is, in this month, is we're just picking a few of our favorite readings from Philippians, and we're looking at it, and hopefully what you'll do today, I would encourage you to do, is go home and spend some time reading the rest of Philippians chapter 1, or 2, or 3, or 4. I think you will find it is very rich, it is full of meat that we can really we can really be encouraged by. I want to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, though, for us this morning. And so we're going to look at that passage of scripture. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Paul writes these words. He says, every time I think of you, Philippians, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Let's read that again. Just listen to these words. 
and how this applies to you. Paul says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on, keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. And so Father, as we spend a few minutes here thinking about how this text of scripture applies to our individual as well as our collective lives, would your Holy Spirit right now raise in our hearts our love for Jesus, our love for, for others, and, and help us to see how we can live this out in a way that is glorifying to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's interesting that Paul begins this letter by offering a prayer, uh, you know, a prayer that is characterized by joy. And that's really um, typical of letters in the ancient world. Paul follows the same protocol in this letter as he does in other letters, as well as all authors in the ancient world followed a, a protocol. They had like a template, so to speak. I don't know about you, but like I um, am terrible at writing letters. I'm thankful that we now can text. It's the best thing ever. But when I do write a letter, I got to open up Microsoft and I go right to the templates. Anybody else do that? Like I go to the template, I'm like how to write a letter. So, you know, you have to have the address in a certain place. And they used to teach that in school, remember? Like where your address goes. But I'm, I look at that and I get it all ready to go. And, and so there's a template, and this is the same thing in Paul's day. There was a template for letters in the ancient world, and oftentimes they started with an introduction from who the letter was going to be from and who it was to. So that way when the person delivering the scroll could look down and see the person's name, who it was going to, rather than opening it and going all the way to the bottom. And so we have Paul starting this off by, by offering a prayer. And this prayer is characterized by joy. Now, Paul has a lot to be joyful about in his prayer for the Philippians because he's super close to them. And I think that's why I love this book is because you get this sense in Paul's writing that he doesn't just look at this as another church community that, that he's connected to because they're all Christians and that's it. But you get the sense that he really truly loves these people. This book is full of warmth and love and you can tell that Paul has this deep admiration for the Philippian church. And it's very fascinating to me that you see this. This is, I think, not, not true of all seminary educations, but when I was in seminary, um, when I was you know, studying theology and studying the Bible and studying ministry, I remember taking this one class on pastoral ministry. And one of the things that we learned from our professor was that pastors should never ever be close to people in their church. And I think part of that was because in the denomination that this, church, this, this seminary was connected to, pastors would last for about two to five years, and then they would move. And as you can imagine, after two or five years, if you're moving all the time, it probably would be really hard to go through that 
um, that transition. But one of the reasons why is because um, the professors used to always talk about how there needs to be a big separation relationally between the church and the leadership of churches. But would you all agree that Paul is demonstrating completely different way of ministry right here? Like he is overwhelmed by relationship with them. In fact, just look at verses seven and eight. This is so interesting. Paul says this. He says, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. How much I long for you. You know, I can't say I'm at a place where like I'm longing for all of you. That just feels weird to say that, but hear me out. But I will say this. The few times that I've traveled away from Red Bluff, especially if I'm driving, like I remember a few years ago, our family packed up our, our vehicle and we drove back to the Midwest to visit our family and we had like two weeks and, and man, driving with seven people in one car, it will make you long for your church. It will. No, we had a great time, but I do remember on our way back, what had happened is, um, Don and I had an opportunity. Our kids decided to go and, and spend more time with their grandparents. And so Don and I were just driving back together. And, and it was great. We had like this opportunity to spend some time together, just the two of us. But I remember when we got close to, we were like within three hours of Red Bluff. And I saw the first sign with Red Bluff, the city of Red Bluff on it. It had the, the miles on it. And I remember in my heart having this like really strong like sense of like, I can't wait to be home. I can't wait to, I was longing for being in Red Bluff. And I think that's similar to what Paul is saying here is that when you fall in love with a community of people, you long to be with them. It's like, you know, we can be away from each other and we can, we can go out and do things. But at the end of the day, there's something valuable about being in community and being with a, a group of people that you consider family. And family is one of the most counter cultural things about the church world and the ancient world. So when Paul calls the church family, it was so weird because in the ancient world, you did not look at people outside of your bloodline as being in the same realm as that. But he introduces this idea of family. And so it's really obvious to me that Paul has this overwhelming sense of admiration for the church of Philippi. And I find that inspiring. But here's another reason why I think Paul had joy. This is another reason why Paul had joy for the Philippians, and it's found right there in verse six. I think it's because he knew who God was and he knew what God had promised to keep on doing in the Philippians. When we read it again, it said, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So no matter what it looks like on the outside, God is at work on the inside. Like, I don't know about you, but it might be really frustrating sometimes with people that you're in community with. And like, it's really easy to like, look at them through a lens that dehumanizes them or, or places them in the realm of crazy or whatever it is that we use, whatever words we use to kind of like minimize our love for them. But Paul saw past those things about the Philippians. Paul saw that God had started doing something in their lives and he was certain, he was absolutely certain that God would carry those things forth and would 
continue to transform people's lives. And that brought him great joy. And so I think about that in our church. Um, You know, I'm sure that if we went around the room, we could all come up with reasons why there are people in this room that drive us crazy. Don't do that right now. But we could. Am I right? Like we have like, oh man, so-and-so, blah, 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 you know? Like, oh my gosh, I can't stand whatever they're doing. Or I don't agree with this. And, and those things might be true, but they're not the things that we root our identities in, right? I mean, Paul is saying, hey, listen, God has started doing something in the people in this room. God has planted seeds in the hearts of people in this room. And, and Paul says, I'm certain that God's going to carry those things forth. And that's one of the things that helps. I mean, honestly, people can drive me crazy as well. Like, I know we all have lists in our minds and maybe on paper, right? We do, and yet what gives us a bit of hope and maybe perhaps vision is to look past those things and see that God has started doing good work in people. And we have to just allow God's work to continue and look past those things. I just love that truth about this. So you may have gotten yourself in a big old mess, but God can get you out of that mess, amen? God can get you out of that mess. God will continue to work in your life. And this is a vision for people that's rooted in hope. It's a vision for people that's rooted in love. And it's, it's rooted, this is what Paul's doing here. It's rooted in awareness of the faithfulness of God. I don't know about you, but that is one thing that gives me great comfort every single day is that I might not always be faithful and you might not always be faithful, but Jesus is always faithful. He is always faithful to us. He has not failed us, and he has not, he's, he will continue to be faithful to us. And so that is a beautiful truth. God is at work, and we should have joy. By the way, have you ever thought about the difference between joy and happiness? Because, like, I don't, I, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of people who seem really happy, but it's just, like, not really that, that sustainable. I, I, I think the way that I have thought about the difference between joy and happiness is that Happiness is really just an outward expression, whereas biblically speaking, joy is an inward reality. If you have joy in your life, you might have happiness, but you're going to also have something that sustains you for a very long time. First time I ever did a mission trip, like outside of the U.S., I I decided to go big, and I went to Nepal. So 2009, I get a ticket, and I've shared this story. I go to Nepal, and I remember um, one of the first people I met was this pastor and what had happened is uh, we, were, we flew to Nepal, we flew to Kathmandu, and we started doing these pastor trainings. We were, we were starting a Bible university over there. So like 900 pastors from all over Nepal travel to the city of Kathmandu are meeting for these 8 o'clock in the morning until 5 p.m. lectures all day long. And during one of the breaks, this pastor came up to me and, and introduced a friend of his who was another Nepali pastor. And this pastor... Look, he had scars all over his body. I mean, they were very noticeable. And he was yet the happiest person and the most joyful person I ever met, just this big smile on his face. And so he was telling me about how he is so honored, he was so honored to be counted worthy of the gospel. He said that over and over again. He's like, I'm just so, so deeply honored to be able to serve Jesus. And so, you know, we shook hands and then he walked away and one of the other pastors told me his story. And so in Nepal, they have these, these, these uh, political um, changes that happen every so often. I mean, we think our politics 
are crazy, which by the way, they are. Just wanna put that out there. But I'll tell you this, this is what they have happen. When they have, when they have political um, situations happen, their whole entire world goes into upheaval because there are Maoists, communists from China who are constantly trying to, to change their elections. And so they'll have a bunch of Maoists come to Nepal and they'll take over villages and they'll riot and they'll, they'll actually um, you know, shoot people. It's, it's really crazy. And so this pastor was pastoring in a small village and the Maoists came, found out he was a Christian and they tortured him for 30 days, every single day. And one of the things they did is they took a rebar and they were poking him with it. And that's why I had all these scars. And I mean, it was like, as they told me the story, I was, I was so overwhelmed because think about this person who was so full of joy. I mean, like I, I would just be really angry all the time, right? I mean, think about it. It would be like, you know, we got the, we got the worst hand in life. But this particular person saw that he had been given grace and he was so full of joy. And I, I just remember um, his, his demeanor was, was radically different than, than happiness because it was an inward reality. He knew to whom he belonged. He knew to whom he belonged. And so he considered those, those light momentary affli- afflictions that Paul talks about as being you know, minimal in comparison to eternity. And that's the type of joy that I think Paul is exuding here. It's coming out of him because we just read in the Corinthian correspondence, he's been beaten, he's been bruised, he's been spat upon, he's been hit with rods, he was shipwrecked, he has gone through a lot of different things, yet he has great joy for the Philippians because they are dear to his heart. And so it's really moving to think about that. But he also made this statement about wanting the Philippians to know what really matters. What really matters? And um, I think that's a good question. What really matters for us? I mean, like, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that. You know, I think that as you, as you have a family, I remember before I got married, there were certain things that you thought mattered, and then you get married and you find out that your wife doesn't think any of them matter, right? Or your spouse doesn't think, it goes both ways. Uh, and then you start having kids and you start to find out that a lot of the things that you thought were really important, you can't do anyway because you don't have any money for them, right? I mean, things change in life. And the things that we think really matter, as you get older, you find out that a lot of those things that you thought were so important when you were 16, 17, 24, 25, 30 are really not that important. And I'm told that when you get into your 60s, you even have a better perspective. And then when you get into your 70s, it's even better. And then when you're 80, I don't even know if you can think about it anymore. I'm not sure, but, you know, just throwing that out there for you, right? But the point is, is that what really matters, it, we have different perspective when we get more perspective, right? We get more perspective when we have more perspective. And this is what Paul is wanting us to do is to have a sense of perspective, what really matters. And let me tell you this, Paul Paul the Apostle, Mr. Travel the whole world to tell people about Jesus. He wants followers of Jesus to know what really matters. And so what is it? This is what he says. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. What kind of knowledge and understanding? Paul always uses those two words, knowledge and understanding, having to do with the gospel of the kingdom, having to do with Jesus. So he says, I want your love to abound still more and more. I want you to overflow with love. And this needs to be our prayer as well, amen? 
This needs to be our prayer as well, that love will overflow. And this is why the church, followers of Jesus, I think this is why we should be so deeply aware of what love is, and we should be so deeply aware of what love looks like. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, about how, like, if there's anything we should be specialists about, if there's anything we should all have master's degrees in, it should be knowing what love is, knowing what love looks like. That, that is something that I think we should all, we, would you agree? Like Jesus says over and over again, they will, they will be known by their love. He says, love me. He says, love one another, love your enemies. Love, 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 love. So if there's anything that we should know a lot about, it should be love, okay? It should be love. And, and I've been thinking about that because would you not agree with me that it seems like Oftentimes, Christians are not known for their love. Amen? Can we agree with that? Is it, can we just at least acknowledge that? It's true. And so I got, I got thinking about that. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus comes, he's born, he, he lives his life, and when he's 30 years old, about 30 years old, he starts his public ministry. He starts preaching about the kingdom of God. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's restoring people into community by healing them because they were ostracized because of the sickness that they had. He's constantly doing things to bring people into his community. And on the other hand, Jesus is constantly jacking up the Pharisees, right? I mean, he just looks at them and sees them for what they are. They are hypocrites. They are they're religious zealots who care more about rules and regulations and less about connecting people to Jesus, to God, right? Are you with me? Like he does that all the time. All I got to say is this. I don't think the Pharisees thought they were Pharisees in the sense of that word. I think they all thought they were doing things the right way. And so I know we oftentimes read the Bible and we read it through this lens that we are the winners and whatever positive heroic character is in the story, that must be us. And we're so loving. We are so good at loving Love just exudes from everything we do. But might we for a moment just ask whether or not we actually do know love as much as we're supposed to? And not only know about love, but are we as loving as we are supposed to be? And if we're not, that's why we have to pray more for God's leading, God's direction, and more of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. Amen? Let's stand up together.